The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And it is time for another research highlight. And the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, or the NACCT, took place at the end of September in Canada. So much great research being presented and very lucky to be joined by six different pharmacists highlighting their contributions. Snakebite incidents in the era of global warming, post-discharge management, a discussion on a withdrawal of a substance you likely haven't heard of but could be impacted by, interactive learning in the emergency medicine and tox space, and then a great discussion into the carbapen and valproate interaction with two different scenarios. So quick reminder for the format of these pharmacist featured research highlight episodes. Uh, I'll introduce each guest. They'll give an overview of their research, almost like uh, if you were going by their poster, their poster spiel, right? Quick little four to five minute overview. And then I'll rejoin them for a Q&A. Um, one note here is that the link in the episode description normally takes you to a reference list. Today, it'll take you to the website where it'll have a uh, all of their abstract posters. So you're able to visually see these research highlights that we're talking about, visualize what the guests are referencing as they're going through their overview. So sit back and learn from some of our favorite toxicologists and emergency medicine pharmacists because the 2023 NACCT research highlight episode begins right now. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to 
recurring guest, Jimmy Leonard. Now, Jimmy is the director of clinical services of the Maryland Poison Center, an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and also works as an emergency medicine pharmacist. Uh, find him uh, on Twitter at LeonardJBRX. Uh, I'm very excited. He's here to highlight his NACCT research, the association between daily high temperature and copperhead envenomations reported to a regional poison center. So, Jimmy, welcome back. Appreciate you joining us. Go ahead and tell us more about this uh, awesome research idea. Yeah, Nick, thanks a lot for uh, for having me back. So, uh, essentially what we did um, and what kind of was what we've noticed over time is we started to see um, an expansion of our snake bite season, right? So, classically, um, snakes, especially in the Maryland area, are more active between May and um August, maybe a little bit into September. And what we started to notice over the last few years is a really um, a shifting even further away from that center time of the summer into, you know, early April and then even as late as November, right? And we've seen these hot, hot weeks that are occurring later in the year. Um, and there's a little bit of data out there, I think, out of Alabama that looked at whether um, snake envenomations are at all associated with um, temperature, right? And so what we actually did is we, we did a similar study trying to look over time and, and also to look and see, are there more envenomations that occur? You know, is there a difference in temperature? Um, so what we actually did is we went back through our cases through, um, I gosh, I want to say like 17 years of cases um, and reviewed to see if, a, you know, when a sneak bite was called into the poison center, specifically a copperhead, because that's almost exclusively what we hear about here in Maryland, um, looked to see was the sneak bite, did it occur? Um, and that could have either been a dry bite, so no envenomation, or a wet bite with an envenomation. Um, we looked at uh, that and then we tried to determine um, what the temperature was in that region. So we knew approximately where the bites occurred. And then we went through and pulled weather data um, from uh, climate data online for the nearest station and said, okay, what was the high temperature um, on that day? And then we actually uh, went back and grabbed a control date about a week before to say, what was the temperature a week before? Uh, and then we looked at it and compared our um, daily temperature and to see if there was you know, a higher temp on days when people were bitten or when a bite was reported versus when there was no bite reported. Uh, we had 624 envenomations um over the you know 17 year time span and those generally went up over time um from about 2005 until 2012 you know maybe just 20 to a little over 30 cases per year and then we've seen close to about 45 per year for the last like seven years or 10 years as of that point in time um most of our cases were about you know, the, the median age or mean age was 41 years old, which is kind of expected, right? People out doing things. Um, a good chunk of them, though, were under 18, so about 17%. Um, and I don't think the population of Maryland, Maryland is under 17, 18, under 18 to 17%. 
Um, and we had, as kind of expected, mostly male, so 62%. Um, and then the other thing that we looked at was like time of day, right? When did this occur? A lot of it occurs in the evening between like 5 p.m. and midnight. Um, and then the like high level top results was, yeah, there is a statistically significant difference in the temperature. So it was about 85 degrees on dates when there was a bite reported and 82.5 degrees. So two and a half degree temperature difference on days when there was no bite reported. Um, so that's basically what we found, right? There is a positive association with higher temperature, even within what you would consider to be a fairly narrow band of temperature. Um, really interestingly though, the bites, the temperature ranged from like 58 degrees all the way up to 104 degrees. Like shockingly, snakes are still active on days when it's 104 degrees out. Um, so those were our main results and that was really what we were looking at. Um, we did some uh, analysis and did um, an odds ratio using conditional logistic regression. What we found that there is a positive association for every one degree Fahrenheit, there's a 6% relative increase in the odds of envenomation. So those were high level. Um, things that we're looking at, um, so there was a chunk of cases that occurred or a chunk of bites that occurred between like 5 a.m. and 11 a.m., which is fairly atypical, right? Snakes aren't necessarily as active. So what we're actually going to do is look at um, the minimum temperature during that period of time to say, oh, you know, is this already a warm day? So snakes were already active early in the morning. Um, and then the other thing that we're doing, so, so we kind of controlled for human activity, right? So by using a week before, we said, okay, we're not comparing a Sunday when people are out and active to, you know, a Monday when they aren't nearly as active. Um, so we did that one week. So we were looking at the exact, like, same day of the week. But what we're actually following up is we were able to get some data from the Department of Natural Resources, specifically, like, um, parks and recreation, to look at park visits per day during this period of time as, like, a good surrogate of human activity. Right, so we're able to look at, oh, it's 4th of July, and so there are a ton of people out and about and in the parks, right? Um, so we need to explore some of that still. Um, and then the other thing that we're going to look at is um, severity of envenomation, right? So is it considered, you know, a more, more severe bite because it swelled, you know, farther up the limb and a lot faster? Or was it, um, you know, is that associated with temperature, yes or no? Um, we didn't look at whether a patient received antivenom um, relative to temperature, right? That's, and that really doesn't tell us about dry bites versus wet, although that data are in there, and we're working on that for the manuscript. Um, but importantly, when it all comes down to it, the most important thing is with warmer temperatures, we are seeing more envenomations. So this research focused on copperhead enveniminations, but is there evidence of this with other types of snakes? So one other study that was previously done was out of Alabama actually also was copperheads as well. Um, but we met somebody at uh, NACT when we were presenting this data 
And there's actually um, a study that looked, uh, a group looked at northern Pacific rattlesnake bites out of central California. And they actually looked at weather bands as well to see what the temperature was. Um, and what they were able to figure out is the snakes were really only active between, uh, this is in Celsius, 26.4 and 32 degrees um, Celsius. So it is a fairly tight band as well. It's a little bit um, cooler of a temperature than we found as our like main days for bites, um, but it is Northern California. Um, so that's expected. So, so yeah, and, and we know that like summer is the time, right? Snakes are out, snakes are active during the summer. Um, so it's, it's assumed, but the other thing that we really wanted to look at is there, is there a cap, right? So to say, once we hit, you know, a hundred degrees, are we not seeing any bites? Um, and that, that requires more exploration. Um, and I don't know if there's any of that data for other snakes. So you mentioned the the time frame that that kind of bite window has been extended or shifted. So as the temperature has kind of gone up universally, right? Have you all with that time frame being extended and the temperature going up, have you all seen the same increase in the frequency of snake bites? Yeah, it fluctuates a little bit year to year, but in general, we're seeing an upward trend in the number of envenomations and snake bites that we're seeing every year here right um it's 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 warmer and like i said i kind of wonder if as it gets even warmer we're going to see fewer bites because maybe they're going to be you know the snakes are going to be hiding and trying to avoid um avoid humans even more than they already do or just you know they're warm they're content they don't need to be out in the sun as and nearly as active Okay, and then you know you you highlighted that the snakes are biting from fifty nine degrees to one hundred and four degrees. So there's probably some listeners here that this is their fear factor. So um, from uh, one toxicologist to our listeners, what are some tips for how they do not get bit by copperhead snakes? So in general, if you see Hershey kisses, stay away from the Hershey kisses. Um, <laughs> It's a really good descriptor of copperheads, right? They have those beautiful Hershey kiss shapes on their sides. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is really like if you're in an area that are, is known to have copperheads, kind of be cognizant of places where you're reaching, right? So if you're reaching into a wood pile, probably rattle the wood pile around a little bit, give anything in there a warning so that you're not just reaching in blind. Um, and that's actually, so this has been replicated study over study, copperheads, rattlesnakes, right? A lot of the envenomations are people just going about their daily lives, right? Reaching into places, gardening, reaching under things where they can't see. And the snake, you know, copperheads don't have a rattle, so their way of warning you to not come there is to stay really still, right? And they just say, like, don't don't step on me. I will bite you. And then you reach too close, and they bite you, shockingly. <laughs> um, so paying attention. The other thing is actually making sure that if you're out and you're walking, you're wearing real shoes, right? Lots of people bitten on the foot wearing flip-flops, right? And again, not just our study also shown in, I think, the study from the North, North American Snakebite Registry 
it was probably, gosh, at this point, six years ago, five years ago, um, showed really similar things. Walking at dusk is a really common um, activity that people are doing, just kind of walking through, you know, wooded areas, walking their dog. Um, so paying attention, right, making sure that you're actually looking around. Don't interact with them, right? The classic pejorative things have to do with, oh, tattoos and testosterone and tequila, right? That's not what we're seeing nearly as much. We're seeing a lot of people just doing their doing their normal activities of daily living and they cross paths with a snake. Um, the other one that uh, comes up quite a bit was, uh, or not quite a bit, but happened enough times is people trying to protect the group from a snake. The way to protect the group from a snake is to walk away and observe from a distance, right? Like you don't need to shoo it off. You, you're waving your hand at the snake to shoo it off. Well, it thinks you're trying to attack it. So it's going to bite that hand. Um, there were a couple of veterinarians who were like, oh, I need to move this snake out of the middle of the road so it doesn't get run over. Yeah, the other option is to kind of, you know, protect traffic and call animal control, right? Call a professional that can come and deal with the snake. Um, so unless you are a pro, don't interact with them, right? Don't don't bring out your like forked um, stick. Get a snake hook or call a professional to have it move. Right. Do your best to not interact with it. I do have to give a shout out. So um, Andrea Harris is a med student. She's now a fourth year. She was the lead author on this. Did a lot of work. A lot of the statistical analysis helped out a lot. Or did data collection. We actually did dual data extraction for this. Um, she's a fourth year medical student. She was doing this as part of her MPH project. Great. You know, did a really good job applying for EM, interested in toxicology and um, potentially even wilderness medicine as a fellowship. And then Heather Selman's one of our um, poison specialists here who actually was able to help out extract a lot of data contribute to it. She's the other one who did a lot of the data collection. Um, and so, yeah, they, they put in a ton of hours, tons of hours to get these data pulled out um, so that we could analyze it and write it up and then, you know, present it at the, uh, at the conference. Great research comes from a great team. So it sounds like you, uh, Andrew and Heather were awesome teammates on this uh, poster. Excited to see where this comes, where this goes. Uh, and Jimmy, always enjoy having you back and uh, everyone learns something every time you come on. This is no exception. So appreciate you. And, and I know you're probably going to have this because this is about toxicology. But of course, if you're bitten by a snake, call your regional poison center at 1-800-222-1222. They're available 24-7, 365. <laughs> and I hope you get that from every single person that you talk to. We're two for two so far, and I think we're going to be batting 100%, which just shows the that it is a universal thought to always call your local poison specialist. Perfect way to end. Thanks, Jimmy. And our next guest highlighting their NACCT research is Aaron Ryan. 
Now, Aaron is a PGY1 pharmacy resident at the University of Illinois, Chicago in, of course, Sweet Home, Chicago. You can find her on Twitter at eeryan 22 and she's going to talk about her research, Persistent Complications Following Snake Envenomation, Results of a Specialized Snake Post-Discharge Clinic. Erin, uh, welcome. Appreciate you joining. Go ahead and tell the listeners more about this uh, research study you were involved in. Thanks so much for having me. So just to give a little bit of background about how this project came about, this work that I did when I was working as a spy, so a specialist in poison information at the Alabama Poison Information Center, which I did before residency. Um, so we would see a lot of snakes down there, primarily copperheads, but also the occasional cottonmouth and rattlesnakes. And these sort of pit vipers can obviously cause a lot of severe swelling and tissue damage, issues with wound healing and potentially coagulopathy. And we know from previous studies that those symptoms don't necessarily fully resolve by the time of discharge. These patients can continue to have swelling and functional disability for weeks, sometimes even months after they go home. There's also the concern for delayed coagulopathy in the case of rattlesnakes. There's really not much good follow-up care in many places for these patients. So we would have patients going to their PCP or their pediatrician who aren't really familiar with snake bites, and these wounds can look really bad. The residual swelling, even if it's healing appropriately, can look really alarming. So they might treat them inappropriately, send them back to the ED. It was definitely an issue with getting them good follow-up. And all of that led to the creation of the University of Alabama at Birmingham and Children's of Alabama Comprehensive Snake Bite Program, a major part of which is this clinic. So it's a collaboration between the medical toxicology program and the wound care physicians. And they see patients after they're discharged from the hospital, usually within a week. Um, Anyone in the state of Alabama, five years or older, can go there to um, have their bite looked at, make sure that it's healing appropriately, that their labs are normal. And then the referrals are generated through the poison center. So the spies offer follow-up, get the contact information, and kind of set up that appointment. So we launched that in the middle of 2021. Um, And then at those appointments, The patients um, are assessed for persistent swelling, any wound healing issues, signs of infection, um, or the coagulopathy, and interventions that are provided as needed, uh, compression, physical therapy, surgical intervention, if that's indicated, and they have kind of standardized protocols. So there's also not a lot of research into what happens after patients leave the hospital in these sort of bites. Most focus is on the acute period, so we noticed that kind of gap in the literature And so we performed this study to sort of characterize the findings that we see at clinic and determine if there's any factors related to the patient, the bite, or the acute course that were associated with certain complications on follow-up. So we looked at all of the patients seen in the clinic over the first year and a half of operation. That ended up being 40 patients total. We extracted the data from the clinic records and poison center charts um, just to look at those complications and see if we could find any associations. So, like I said, 40 patients total, um, range of ages from five to the oldest was 75 years old. We did have one-third of the patients were peds. These were mostly moderate to severe bites. 90% of them received antivenom during their hospitalization. And kind of the important point as far as the patients goes is the distribution of snake species. So, the vast majority were copperheads or cottonmouths, so our non-rattlesnake snakes. Um, That's pretty representative of the Alabama snake population. We do have species of rattlesnakes there, but they're significantly less common. Very different from, say, Arizona, where a lot of snake bite research happens, and almost all of the snakes are rattlesnakes. 
and it affects what sort of complications you expect to see in terms of coagulopathy for tissue damage. Our population did include four rattlesnakes, but mostly copperheads. So in terms of complications that we did see, um, 29 of the 40 patients had persistent lymphedema at clinic follow-up. There were no cases of late coagulopathy and only two cases of suspected infection, which that at least tracks with what we expected. We don't really expect to see a lot of secondary infections with snake bites. Um, and interventions that were provided. So 21 of the patients had compression of some sort. That's usually like a compression bandage situation just to help with that lymphedema. Uh, 15 of them were, were referred to physical therapy and only four required treatment of the wound. In terms of associations, so there was no difference in the symptoms or interventions needed by gender, but pediatric patients, just over 18, had less of the persistent lymphedema on follow-up, so potentially they're able to recover a little bit better, a little bit faster. Um, in terms of where patients were bit, as in on their bodies, there was a higher need for compression with upper extremity versus lower extremity bites, and then debridement was significantly more common with bites to the digits specifically. So what bit you was also pretty important. Um, persistent lymphedema and need for compression were significantly more common with copperhead uh, versus rattlesnake. Cottonmouths also were lumped into that copperhead group. Um, only one rattlesnake had lymphedema on follow-up and none of them required compression. That might be surprising to some people because people generally think of rattlesnakes as more severe in all aspects. That's definitely true in terms of hematologic effects and mortality. But our data suggests that the non-rattlesnake pit vipers might actually cause more severe or at least more long-lasting swelling. Um, hemorrhagic bullae were also an important symptom when it occurred during hospitalization before they went home. 100% of those patients required physical therapy versus 32% of patients who didn't have the bullae. And then two-thirds of those needed debridement versus only 5% in the other group. Um, Drop-in fibrinogen during their stay in the hospital and systemic symptoms were um, associated with less swelling, actually. We think that's just driven by the snake species. We expect those symptoms with rattlesnakes and not with copperheads. And then the difference in swelling actually also varied based on the type of antivenom they received, so Profab versus Anavip, which is the newer antivenom. 100% um, of our Anavip-treated patients required compression versus only 41% of those who received Profab. It was statistically significant, but it should be noted there were only four patients who received Anavip, so very small sample size. Um, we suspect that's also related to species. So all four of those Anavip patients were bit by copperheads. Um, and anecdotally, we've noted a difficulty controlling swelling in some copperhead bites with Anavip. It was mostly tested in rattlesnakes, and the outcome used in the clinical trial was coagulopathy. So it's Great for that. Unclear whether it's as great for the tissue damage that we're really worried about with the copperheads. So this study had a lot of the usual limitations in talk studies. Uh, the poison center data, which is inherently limited in the information you can get over the phone. And it's a very small patient population with only 40 included. But I think it provided a lot of interesting starting points for future, hopefully larger studies and things that um, providers could watch out for when anticipating complications. So it seems that the hemorrhagic bullae that develop before discharge may be a warning sign for some of the wound healing issues and need for interventions. Um, and our data kind of challenged the idea that rattlesnakes are worse in every way in snake bites. Um, like I said, definitely mortality-wise and hemotoxicity they are, but you should anticipate significant tissue damage with copperheads, even if they don't cause those other effects. Um, and I think it emphasized the need for more studies on anavip in non-rattlesnake pit vipers 
there were only a handful included in the trial and it's still kind of an unknown, but definitely needs further study. Um, so overall, I think our study really confirms that um, there are a lot of complications and persistent symptoms that these patients have after they leave the hospital and delayed coagulopathy is really not the only concern, especially in a population like ours in Alabama, and that there's a lot of potential for interventions that could help, but not a lot of people are providing it. So hopefully our clinic can serve as a kind of example for others trying to do something like this. Well, kudos to all involved. How awesome is that? You know, this is about a, an 18-month time frame where 40 patients, you know, you were able to help. So clearly making a huge difference. Um, now, for someone, I'm a little less familiar with this literature. When you, were these adverse effects, were these what you were expecting to see? Were these different? Like, what did the literature kind of show prior to, like, your all's results, what you found? So most of the previous research on this, on post-discharge sequelae, has focused on that hemotoxicity, so the delayed or late coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia, which is fairly common with rattlesnakes. Um, and like I said, that's what the antivip trial was based on, but it's not really relevant to our patient population. Um, there are some studies that have showed that it can take weeks to months for patients to get back to full function after a copperhead bite. Um, so that was definitely something we were anticipating. Um, and previous studies have shown that the rates of infection are very low. There's some thought that the snake venom is bactericidal, so that tracks with what we saw, only a couple suspected infections in our population. We didn't have any late coagulopathy, not very surprising with our snake population composition, and then we did have those high rates of persistent swelling and disability, so I think that kind of confirms some of the prior research and was in, align in alignment with what we expected based on just anecdotal evidence from our patients. How challenging was it to actually get patients to follow up at the post-discharge clinic? So a common issue with patients declining follow-up is just that they live hours away from the clinic. It's located in Birmingham. It serves the whole state. It's not a small state. So it's definitely understandable when someone down in Mobile in the south of the state doesn't want to drive several hours to get there. Um, and the clinic does have a pretty high no-show rate. Um, we suspect that's partly due to just the natural course of some of these bites. So when we're eliciting the follow-up, the patients are in the hospital, their arms super swollen and painful, they agree to come in. If they go home and it starts getting significantly better in a few days, they might decide not to come, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if it's an indicator they're doing better, especially with our snakes where we're not so worried about missing late coagulopathy. If it's a rattlesnake, we'd be a little more worried. Um, the exception to that is the pediatric patients. The parents are generally very interested in follow-up at the clinic. It's pretty scary to have your young child bit by a venomous snake, so they're very eager to come in. Unfortunately, we can only see patients age five and up, so hopefully we can expand that in the future. Um, and like I said, the referral process is through the Poison Center, and that's become a lot more streamlined over time. Initially, it was just the toxicologist offering it directly to doctors during consults or if they saw patients at the bedside. But we pretty quickly expanded that to the spies offering it to all of our snake bites as they follow up on them. The spies have gotten really good at explaining the process, getting the contact info. We've developed some handouts that we faxed over. And one of our specialists is now kind of the coordinator for the clinic. So she handles the referrals and coordination, maintains records. Um, and we find that many of the patients are pretty excited to come into the clinic. They are very happy to feel like they have somewhere to address their concerns. So should we be doing something different as an inpatient for the care of these patients? Or is this study more about an emphasis on our post-discharge care and filling a gap that was there?
So I don't think this study pointed to any major changes that need to be made in inpatient care. It's definitely a good idea to consult your poison center, especially if you don't have bedside toxicology in your hospital. Snake bites are pretty weird. Um, the treatment can be unusual, and there are things that you can do that can make it worse. So, for example, we always worry about these being misdiagnosed as compartment syndrome and getting a fasciotomy, which will just lead to terrible healing of the wound and won't fix the problem. But otherwise, this is really just emphasizing the need for the post-discharge care and that there's a role for these interventions in the post-discharge period by providers who understand these fights. Uh, these people are definitely still having significant symptoms after they go home, and we're finding that the compression bandages and physical therapy can really help in the healing process. So I'd say the results are mostly useful for kind of defining the prevalence of those complications and helping to identify which patients especially could benefit from close follow-up after they leave the hospital. Well, what an awesome uh, research idea. You mentioned you did this when you were a spy. That's maybe the coolest name of any like title that you could have when you're doing, you know, less than you're, you're not upper management there. Um, so what a cool idea. What an awesome study. Uh, remember at, at E Ryan 22. And we have to say, right. Remember your poison center number one 800 So Aaron, thanks so much. Thank you. And our next featured researcher highlighting uh, research from the NACCT, right, the Clinical Toxicology Conference, is Kristen Reinecker. Now, Kristen is a clinical assistant professor with the Rutgers University School of Pharmacy and an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at the Penn Medicine Princeton Medical Center. And she's highlighting her research entitled Evaluation of Large-Scale Interactive Simulation in Poison Management and Drug Abuse Course Kristen, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. And the, the floor is yours to talk about this awesome research idea. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Big fan. Um, what I want to do is just go over this crazy idea that I had about incorporating simulation into a very large class size in one of our required courses for our third year PharmD students at Rutgers University. So we all know that you can use high fidelity simulations in a lot of different contexts in medical learners in the medicine field, nursing field, pharmacy field. But really, it's interesting in such a simmable area of practice like clinical toxicology, a lot of the literature is focused on medical schools and medical residents and toxicology fellows who are physicians by training. So I thought, well, why on earth can't we do this with pharmacy students who admittedly could eventually either work at a poison center or at least have to know how to interact with patients who have overdosed on something. So that kind of developed this idea to how do we do this when our class sizes are about 200 students per class. It's really difficult to operationalize 200 students going into a simulation center for a 15 minute simulation when there's just so many of them and only four simulation mannequins available at your school. Um, that's really why at Rutgers, historically, we've limited our simulation to smaller class sizes, like clinical electives, including emergency medicine or critical care. Uh, some of our sim suites are also utilized for things like sterile compounding. But for the most part, it's only when you have 15 to 20 students interacting in that setting. And I wanted to be able to do it, but didn't really know how to do it effectively or if I was doing it effectively when I did it with all 200 of them sitting inside of our large didactic classroom. 
So what we did was get some time in the sim lab to record some vignettes with interacting with the mannequin, as well as taking screen grabs of the cardiac monitor, of the physical exam findings, letting them listen to sounds from the belly, uh, look at us, examine the mannequin for things like clonus, and then put this all into a case where they tried to figure out what toxidrome the patient was presenting in, as well as give them some opportunities to, at critical decision points, make a decision and have a spitball off of their answers and see how they were doing and progressing with the case. Uh, so for our study, what we did was a pre and a post survey. And we wanted to look at two things. One, were they actually getting better at this skill by participating in the simulations? We would assess their knowledge with five questions that evaluated if they could pick the correct toxidrome based on a physical exam and some vital signs. And then we wanted to also figure out, were they confident while they did it? Because that's really important to have a student who feels confident about interacting at the bedside. So students had to answer a couple of questions related to how confident they felt on a scale of zero, not confident at all, to three, extremely confident, in regard to how they felt assessing the clinical stability of a patient, gathering history of ingestion from patient and caregivers, identifying that toxidrome, and then selecting an appropriate method of gastrointestinal decontamination. So what we found was that, well, golly, the students really enjoyed the experience and they did better knowledge-wise after they had participated in it. So the students on average tend to do a little bit more toward the zero to one scale before they did the simulation, meaning that they did not feel confident or minor confidence. But by the end of the simulation, they felt confident and or extremely confident, which was great for us for having um, so much time and energy into the experience for them. Uh, not only did their confidence improve, but their skill set at it also improved, which I would argue is even more important. So on these questions that were identical, from pre and post, they scored a lot better on the post. Um, I mean, certainly that could be because they've seen these scenarios or seen this set of vitals before, but I have to say that if you're going to go through and answer a survey and just guess your way through it on the first go around, uh, you're doing a lot better on it the second time and hopefully having a more educated guess behind your responses to that. So overall, we thought it was a great success. The students really enjoyed the experience and in fact have asked me to incorporate more of it into this course moving forward. Uh, so now we try to do it once before each of the three exams in the course of somewhat of a review or application of more difficult concepts. So I put it now before we do our snake bite examination, for example, so that they can learn how to assess and figure out if they should be using anti-venin. Uh, and they also want to see um, more of them in throughout the course. So maybe not necessarily just before the exam, but with each of the lectures, instead of a lower fidelity case-based discussion, perhaps incorporating it more into the course in that regard. But yeah, it was a really fun experience. I am happy to answer whatever questions you have about it to encourage people to not be afraid to do this themselves. Yeah, what an awesome, awesome idea. I think all of us, especially if you those in emergency medicine, I think when you when you see the symptoms, the patient actually having them versus reading them off in a list of signs, and it's just different. And until you experience that, right, a lot of times their confidence in things may not be as high. So what an 
awesome, awesome idea. And especially in this kind of specialty area, like within pharmacy and, and the, the care of the critically ill. So it's the, the, the pre and post answers are, are pretty compelling and things, but I got to imagine that it wasn't all sunshine and roses from beginning to end. So like, what was, what would you say was like one of the biggest hurdles or things you had to overcome for this simulation to be such a success? Yeah, I feel like especially as someone who practices in the emergency department, that's the majority of our job, right? Anticipating disaster. So uh, this was no different than that in the learning space. Uh, what I would say is, like, leave yourself enough time to troubleshoot. What we found when we were recording the mannequin's response in some instances was that it didn't translate well on camera. Um, a specific example was with the ocular responses. I wanted to be able to show students how to differentiate between a sympathomimetic or an anticholinergic toxidrome and how the eye would respond when light is shined into it. Uh, unfortunately, you can see it really well when you're at the bedside next to the mannequin. But in order to get the right angle to record that, it doesn't translate quite as well. So we had to uh, troubleshoot and come up with some way of showing students what that minor difference was with the quality of recording we could provide at the time. So we wound up having to do a comparative video side by side before we went through anything with the students to say the one on the left, that one's responsive. The one on the right, that one's not responsive. Can you tell the difference or let's talk through what, you know, what you're seeing and not seeing. So Things come up that work better when they're in there, boots on ground in the sim lab. But when you have large numbers like that, it's not always possible. So just have a backup plan. <laughs> That's like one of those don't let perfect stop you from doing, right? So it's not 100% exactly. perfect, but there's you know one or two things. But in the scheme of the overall thing, the success completely outweighs any minor things. This sounds technical. Yeah, for sure. Are you were you the technical mind behind all of this? Because this sounds like there was a lot of technology videos uploading. Like, are you are you kind of the the Rutgers tech go to person here? Oh my goodness, I cannot <laughs> say that I am. No, absolutely not. I am very fortunate that I work at an institution that has a really strong simulation team. So we have a director of simulation. Uh, we have another gentleman who is. Oh, he's fantastic. He was a paramedic by training, and now he's taken over the sim lab. So he uh, really handles a lot of the tech for us, as well as is just phenomenal with figuring out the best way of getting this to be executed appropriately with the students who may not even know what an IV line is when they walk into the sim lab. And we also have two other support staff who set up the palace with our you know, simulation mannequins and get everything logistically ironed up in the background. So I cannot take full credit for this. The only thing I really do is come with an idea and a case and try to bring some energy. <laughs> hey, both of those two things are absolutely essential. You got to have good energy and it all starts with a good idea, which clearly you had. And I mean, what a success. You have students like asking for more of this. And I was joking, you got that without offering grades or food which are typically the two incentives that get that get college kids excited, That's right? right? <laughs> so, That's right. So for those who cuz I'm sure there're going to be people, people listening and we're we're are tasked with the same kind of issue that you did with how do we do this on a large scale format? So what advice would you have to other 
others in academia or maybe those who are just in charge with big residency programs to help incorporate simulations into some of that didactic teaching? Yeah, so my biggest thing is don't be scared of it. It can be intimidating. It is a bit of work on the front end, but the what we get out of it in the end really makes it worth all of your time. Like you said, the students loved it, and I didn't even have to bribe them with candy or points or anything like that, and they're asking for more. So clearly it means something to them by going through all the work. What I will say, though, is that you do have to think as the students think meaning there's a lot of rabbit holes that they could go down that you're not anticipating them to go down. Uh, so make sure you consider that. And what I tried to do is I had a resident actually help me write up one of the cases I did after the study was over and had her think through what she would have done. And then we talked through, well, why would you think that? And then we were able to make a plan B or maybe tweak or rewrite some things so that they aligned a little bit better with what I could expect uh, third-year pharmacy students to know at the time. Uh, and back to the resident, she loved it. I mean, granted, I had a student with me or a resident with me rather who really wants to go into academia. So this is a passion for her, but watching her learn by writing the case that she wrote really helped us to, you know, bolster her emergency medicine rotation with me. So, you know, use layered learning. It really helps more than one group of people learn and everyone gets a reward out of the experience. You know, I didn't realize the the benefits that the medical simulation could have until um, our residency program, shout out to, to Haley Peters and Dr. Lauren Falvo. They're the two, one's SIM and the other's kind of our EM pharmacy group doing that for our PGY1 residents. And the, the just doing that, like being able to talk through their mindset in a much more like kind of safe environment, it's, it's really cool. It's certainly the future in terms of like, um, like clinical learning, um, especially with those who want to be at the bedside. So very excited we got to highlight this. Uh, Kristen, thanks so much for joining, talking about this. Uh, appreciate your time and what an awesome idea. Oh, thank you so much. The honor was all mine. Thank you for having me. And very, very special guest with us now, Ryan Feldman, emergency medicine pharmacist, board certified clinical toxicologist, a clinical associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin Pharmacy School. As if that wasn't enough, as if he's not doing enough in all of his time, he has an amazing toxicology podcast you should all be listening to called The Poison Lab. So there'll be a link to that. So be sure to give that a listen. Now, I'm excited. Ryan's going to talk about his uh, research from the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology entitled A Systematic Review of Fenibut Withdrawal with a Focus on Complications, Treatment Strategies, and Fenibut Alone or Polysubstance Withdrawal. Ryan, thanks, man. Appreciate you coming on. Floor's yours. Thank you. Wow, I'm feeling feeling pretty great after that intro. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. So like you mentioned, our research project was a systematic review of fenibut withdrawal. And my guess is most of your listeners won't know what that is, which is exactly why we did this systematic review. This is an emerging substance that we're seeing some pretty nasty complications from. And usually when you encounter it, it's the first time you've encountered it. And there's some, uh, there's not a lot of resources out there to direct a clinician on how to manage it. So maybe I can just start with a little background on what fenibut is. Fenibut is a GABA-B agonist 
that is available to be purchased online. It's often called Russian baclofen because it's one chloride group different from the baclofen molecule. And it's widely available. It was actually used as a prescription in Russia. They put it in their uh, cosmonaut medication bag to make them more relaxed as they were flying to space. Um, now, people figured out that they could buy this substance on the internet from anywhere. It's totally unregulated. Um, so now people are buying jars of basically powdered baclofen and taking it by the spoonful every day. And that can obviously cause some problems, not just with intoxication. So there are some cases of people coming in, you know, sedated from fenibut overdose. But the real problem, the real thing that I have run into and had some issues with is withdrawal. Uh, and there's not a lot out there characterizing Cinebute, its natural course of withdrawal, uh, how long withdrawal lasts, how severe the outcomes can be, when symptoms start, what users were taking before it happened. And that was one of the impetuses of this research was to try to look into, okay, you know, how low of a dose can, let's say someone comes into your office and they say they've been taking one gram daily for a week. Is that going to be enough that could lead to dependence? Um, that was part of it as well as what kinds of outcomes can we see, which we did see, you know, an admission rate of over 88%, you know, ICU admissions, seizures, intubation, all sorts of kind of scary outcomes from the withdrawal syndrome. Uh, and I guess just to throw out there, if, if anyone wants to learn more about this specific substance, um, I did record a podcast episode about it uh, on the Poison Lab. It's called Fenibut, the emerging drug you don't know about yet because we've seen a massive increase in calls to poison centers since about 2015, 2016. And uh, in that episode, we actually interview some Fenibut users, and we discuss uh, research on what's available with, with some authors uh, who have published case reports of managing Fenibut withdrawal. So that's a good resource, too. Yeah, what an awesome idea to even interview like users to get their perspectives and things. Wow, that'll be a must a must listen uh, for all. That's to you toxicology. You all, it's so cool. Like your research and the things you get to do. Um, it, it's such a an awesome perspective uh, into the kind of unique things that you all do on that side of the of the uh, ED or the tox world. I guess you'd say. Yeah, it's a. Uh, sometimes we have it a little easier because most of our subjects are a bit. Uh, there's not much out there yet, so it's pretty easy to shine a light. <laughs> yeah, and, and when when pretty much talking about anything is adding new knowledge. But, so one of the reasons that we did this research was because if you have someone presenting with butte withdrawal, it can be very difficult to understand. Number one, you know, let's say, does this patient need to come into the hospital? Can this patient be managed at home? If they do come into the hospital, what treatments should we utilize for them? A lot of people think that uh, fenibut is a GABA-B agonist, so you should treat it with another GABA-B agonist like baclofen. And in fact, 30% of the published case reports mention the word baclofen in the title. So if you're naive to the substance and you're looking around, you're going to see a lot of case reports that say, hey, let's use baclofen. So we wanted to look at what the actual data was for this. And we found some interesting results. Number one, every patient who acutely stopped fenibut had to be admitted inpatient for management of their symptoms. And about 75% of patients had their symptoms progress in the first 24 hours. Uh, so when they show up to you, they're not looking as bad as they're probably going to look. And if somebody is not going to taper off of it, 
it seemed like every case report required the patient to be admitted in the hospital to manage their symptoms. The majority of patients who were admitted were receiving benzodiazepines, not baclofen. In fact, the acute stabilization phase, it looked like benzos, barbiturates, or baclofen were used, but benzos were the most common. A lot of these patients needed multiple agents. We're talking GABA agents. We're talking alpha-2 agonists, sometimes atypical antipsychotics, sleep aids, your classic cocktails for management of withdrawal. And it looks somewhat like, you know, a bad baclofen withdrawal. You have hallucinations, tremor, dysautonomia, hypertension, um, uh, as well as uh, some patients needing to be intubated uh, for either having a seizure or altered mental status and requiring large amounts of sedatives, propofol, things like that. Um, but I do think it was notable that in our analysis of all the reported cases of withdrawal, if you acutely stopped, you likely had to be admitted. But there were some patients managed appropriately outpatient without a lot of intervention, just doing a but taper. This kind of comes into, that adds some complexity because your patients are using an unregulated substance that they're buying online, sometimes in a powder, sometimes in capsules, sometimes their distributor changes. But it does appear if they have reliable access to a supply of fenibut, a tapering strategy could be reasonable. And in those strategies, oftentimes baclofen was added as an adjunctive to help them taper down from fenibut, and it did seem to be appropriate there. But there's a number of cases, too, where a patient was started on baclofen to manage their withdrawal and actually had an adverse effect. And uh, one patient was stabilized with benzodiazepines and baclofen and sent home within 24 hours and actually had a seizure on the baclofen monotherapy. Uh, and then another patient was stabilized with multiple agents and sent home on just baclofen and ended up relapsing because the baclofen was not adequate. Uh, per, per report and ended up being treated with benzos. And actually, when we interviewed some Fenibut users, anecdotally, or anecdotally, you know, they said the baclofen did help, but it wasn't necessarily a, you know, a complete replacement of the Fenibut. So we just noticed that there's a lot more to be known. Uh, the literature seems to have a preference for recommending baclofen, but that's very fragile data, and there's actually some adverse effects that have been noted with it. So. From our perspective, with the limited data that's available, it seems likely that you know potentially benzos would be more of a workhorse, or benzos with baclofen to acutely stabilize a patient, um, and then looking at maybe baclofen as a monotherapy. But there's a lot more to be known, and that can be sussed out in the abstract and in the manuscript forthcoming for anyone who is interested. And I, I'm hoping really that this is a resource. If you do unfortunately encounter one of these patients. Who's been buying Fenny, but from a GNC even, you can get it there and shows up in pretty extreme withdrawal that you'll have a resource to go back to, to say, okay, how likely, how long will this withdrawal usually last? What agents are typically used? How fragile is the data for those agents? And uh, hopefully remember to call a poison center somewhere in between there. So I have to comment on something. So I've heard you say you can get this from everywhere from like the the web to a GNC. So where like it is it truly that easy that if somebody like googled it and wanted to get it, they would probably be able to get it and get their hands on it? Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to I don't love promoting the fact that this is widely available, but it is and anybody who wants to get it can use it. Uh it, you know, 
you go to any nootropic websites, uh, you know, things like that. It has been sold in actual retail stores as well. And if you look online, people are taking it for social anxiety, euphoria. Some are taking it to actually withdraw, uh, manage withdrawal from other substances like ethanol. And it's completely unregulated. It's not scheduled. It's not even considered a uh, drug in the United States. It is a, uh, something that you can essentially buy over the counter. And when you're talking about, you know, we hope this is helpful because there's just not a lot out there. Like the, you know, it looks like 37 patients, right? The N is 12 and 25, in, at least in terms of the abstract. So we're talking, you know, small data. So pulling it together to help us um, is awesome. Now, this is coming from, I'm sure you knew this. I had never even really heard of Fenibut before, before I reached out to you to come on. So when I see that you're, that, that benzos are kind of our first line treatment, on a scale from like, we're, we're the 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 lorazepam dosing for like non-epileptic seizures up to like your dosing to severe alcohol withdrawal those really big doses where do we fall on the scale on like the doses that we're using in 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 the treatment of this withdrawal well real quick correction there's only 25 cases in this series it, 12 of them were withdrawing only from fenibut and the uh, or from multiple substances and 13 were only fenibut oh so that's a subset um, so it's even less than 37 you're it's we're right. even less numbers <laughs> exactly so a very fragile data set and any comparative evidence would help us guide a lot more but when you have absent evidence you have to make do with what you can we're we trying have. to collate that limited data here now in terms of the benzos right so fenibut withdrawal it's just like other withdrawals where it's going to be a spectrum. You have some people with more mild symptoms, some people with severe symptoms, and some with moderate. Uh, the severe cases of withdrawal are scary when you read them. We're talking about 30-day admissions. We're talking about uh, hot, you know, tachycardia, tremor, hallucinations. And these patients are getting 17 milligrams of lorazepam in the first 18 hours. You know, it, it, Really big doses. And often needing phenobarbital, often needing you know, lots and lots of baclofen. We have patients on over 100 milligrams of baclofen a day trying to manage this withdrawal. Um, and so you can definitely escalate, but there are others who have more manageable symptoms. How to actually grade the withdrawal severity is another conundrum. Uh, if you look in the case reports, most of them, uh, only about half of them actually used a withdrawal scale, and the most common one was CEWA because you see similar autonomic dysfunction, you see similar, uh, you know, neuropsychiatric symptoms. So it's a decent scale to measure, okay, how bad is your withdrawal? But it's not validated in Fenibut, obviously. But that is one method that can help guide how many benzos you might need since there really isn't any other method out there right now. So you're highlighting how like severe this withdrawal can be. How do we, are we able to test for the presence of this yet? Like how can, how are we, like if, if they were come to the ICU, how are we able to identify what substance they're even taking? Of course, let's you and of course you've called the poison. You've called your your poison center one eight hundred two 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 one two 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 two. So so I had that. We got to put that plug in. Anytime you got tox on, you got to make sure the poison number gets said sometime throughout right. the episode. But how do we know that it's like that's actually what's causing it? Right. So. Confirmatory testing is pretty difficult. Uh, there are probably are a few, you know, gold star centers that have that like 900 panel GCMS. They're able to send out, uh, you know, I think like Arizona and some places in Minnesota have those. But probably 99.9% of the nation is not going to have that available. 
And there are reference labs. You could probably send a level two, but most of the time you're diagnosing this by history. A family member comes in, brings in an empty jar of Fenibut, says he ran out of this two days ago. Or, you know, in our, in our, uh, in, in the cases that we've largely been involved in, uh, poison centers definitely get called about this stuff more often than uh, your uh, average person working in a hospital where it's just the frequency of someone showing up is going to be less. But it's almost entirely history-based. Either a patient will endorse it or a patient is going to, um, or a family member is going to mention their search history or that they've been taking this weird supplement for a long time. Uh, and that's so a good detailed history on these patients with family, with the patient on what they've been taking, what over-the-counters they've been taking. Because a lot of people won't recognize that this is actually, a, you know, a, a pharmacologically active medicine. And uh, in terms of confirmatory analysis, how do we know that this is causing the withdrawal? That's a good point. Most of the cases do not have uh, confirmation, and there is polysubstance withdrawal is really common. Many people using Fenibut are not just using Fenibut. They might also be using Kratom. They might also be using other opioids, or alcohol is a common co-ingestion. So you might actually be managing both withdrawals at the same time. My last question is, and you you may not know this, but from from what's been published and maybe what you know from your colleagues, is this regional at all in the U.S. or is this kind of spread kind of consistently throughout the country? I believe due to the way that it is accessed, there's not been any regionality that's been demonstrated because it's purchased usually online. I do think some retail stores have it or that's at least been reported, but Usually, someone's finding out about this on a web forum and where it's being discussed, and then you go into the link, buying a bottle of it. They like it. They buy another bottle. Now, three weeks later, they have some dependence on it. You know, in this case series, we had people develop dependence in as little as one week and then had withdrawal symptoms when they stopped at a pretty low dose, too. Um, you know, there is no FDA-approved dosing, but most clinical trials in Russia when they were studying it were under, uh, you know, a gram. And people in this case series developed withdrawal taking two grams once a day for a week or one gram uh, once a day for two weeks. And some people are taking up to 35 grams a day, you know, so it's a whole slew of of what's going on. The Russian baclofen, AKA Fenibut. I appreciate you coming on and highlighting that quick aside. When, when someone says the word supplement by you, do your, do the, does the hair on your arm, stand up do you get like a tingly sense as a toxicologist when the word supplement is uttered in your uh, in your vicinity yeah unfortunately <laughs> the, the, the quick recall when supplement is said to me is like oh i don't know like benzo contamination lead poisoning i uh, withdraw like i Rarely am I like, oh, good health benefits from that. <laughs> uh, reach out to Ryan at EM Poison Farm D. And then, of course, remember his toxicology podcast, The Poison Lab. It's awesome. A must, a must listen and follow for all. So, Ryan, I appreciate you coming on, highlighting the abstract. And uh, thanks for your time and effort, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Nick Petrucelli. Now, Nick is an emergency medicine and critical care clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's here discussing his NACCT research, the evaluation of the carbapenem valproate interaction. Uh, so, Nick, thanks so much for joining, and take it away. All right. Well, firstly, thanks for having me, Nick. This is an awesome platform you have here with this podcast, so certainly appreciate the opportunity. 
I can provide a little bit more context to the project just to start us off. So my team and I investigated the carbapenem valproate drug-drug interaction, which for some time has been known to be quite a tricky interaction to manage, given carbapenem seemingly decreased the serum concentrations of valproate, which can leave patients vulnerable to potentially really severe consequences, uh, upwards of about several weeks, potentially. Um, so, you know, throughout my training, I was always trying to sort of mentally compartmentalize drug-drug interactions. Uh, you know, which ones do I not have to worry about? Which ones can I just sort of blow through the alerts for versus which ones actually require a little bit more thought and planning behind? So this particular interaction always really piqued my interest because, one, it sort of seemed to be one of the ones that required more mindful considerations. And two, I felt that there was this sort of widespread uncertainty as to how to manage it effectively. I think one of the trickiest pieces to this puzzle is the fact that when carbapenems are employed, these patients likely don't have many other therapeutic options for anti-infectives, you know, just given the carbapenem spectrum and use reservation. Um, you know, these patients may have beta-lactam allergies or histories of multi-drug resistant organisms, for example. So ultimately, our objective was to retrospectively examine the clinical outcomes and consequences with the interaction and also to investigate what our institution was doing in regards to management. So we ultimately included patients from 2017 to 2022 that were at our hospital, MGH, and Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is another academic medical center within our health system. All the patients received a carbapenem antibiotic concomitantly with valproate product. We separated our patients into two distinct groups. So we had valproate for seizure control and then valproate for mood control. As we felt this second cohort has likely been underrepresented in prior studies, um, just given a lot of interest lies with the seizure piece of this interaction. So we really wanted to assess both. We ended up analyzing 134 encounters where carbapenem was employed in patients taking valproate for seizures specifically, in which we found that 46% of those patients actually seized during their hospitalization after exposure. We found about 24% of those patients were placed on a new anti-epileptic agent after the fact, while the dose of their valproate was increased in about 30% of those patients. So we sort of assessed those two distinct mitigation strategies there. And then in our other group, which was looking at the mood-related disorders, we analyzed 124 encounters, so close to the same, just slightly less. Uh, and for those patients, we found that concomitant use led to behavioral disturbances in about 50% of those patients. We recognize that the behavioral disturbance is a very challenging outcome to measure. Um, and so we did have to use surrogate markers, such as the ordering of a psychiatric consult or the presence of a predefined keyword uh, within a patient progress note, such as uh, agitation or combative or something like that. So ultimately, we felt that what we found kind of gave more credence to the drug-drug interactions and will give us something useful to work with when potentially providing some more education across our department. Um, I think looking forward, we are pretty interested in seeing the effectiveness of the mitigation strategies employed and sort of comparing them, you know, like how effective is it really to increase the dose of VPA versus how effective is it to just add a new anti-epileptic agent, for example. What an awesome 
research like idea and execution because I think this is one of the drug interactions where I'm not sure everybody is aware of how severe of an interaction it is when you give them concomitantly. So one of the things that stood out is um, in the outcome results mentioned that the median percent dose increase was about 50%. So it, is this a scenario where you know, if this is the the rare reason when we have to use both together, should there be an empiric dose increase for that valproate, like when we use these together? Uh, that's such a good question. Yeah, we definitely did see patients who had their dose increase, um, but I would say likely not uh, as a recommendation. We didn't necessarily investigate how successful this approach may have been. Um, but uh, other studies are pointing to an idea that no matter how much that the dose is increased, it is likely very challenging to overcome the effects of the carbapenem administered. And there's probably some other mitigation strategies that we should likely be employing instead. Yeah, I love that you emphasize that because I feel like, you know, uh, you're you're just increasing and increasing and increasing and it feels like you're you're never right. making headway when you're kind of getting those therapeutic levels. So taking totally. this kind of research from the clinical side and bringing it kind of back to your hospital. Is there any plans to like update language for the drug drug interaction or what are, what are your plans to kind of emphasize this interaction for uh, providers at your institution? Yeah, another great question. We haven't made any changes to our drug drug interaction alert as we've already had a pretty robust one in place. Moving forward, I believe that further education is going to play a pretty huge role to help emphasize the legitimacy of this interaction. You know, there are so many key players that may have a role in management in the inpatient setting, certainly our pharmacists across all of our teams that are verifying these orders, but also the primary teams that are ordering the drugs themselves and the various consult services that are recommending them, such as, you know, our ID colleagues, our neuro colleagues, and then our psychiatric colleagues as well. Um, so I think there's just a large pool of people who will probably benefit from just a little further education on this piece. And then to kind of play both sides of it, sometimes they they might not know they're on valproate, right, when they potentially start empiric treatment right. and things. So there probably is some, I doubt everyone saw saw that on their MAR and still did the carbapenem, but again, right, we, we, we the data is what it is. Um, so... Exactly. You, you know, in the intro mentioned yeah, emergency medicine and critical care pharmacists. So I want to kind of pose for the last question. A, I think we've all been as we go into the ER, you kind of settle down, you look at a few patients and you just see some things on the MAR that like just make stand out, right? You're like, well, this is going to kind of um, takes whatever you were going to do and, and shifts this to the prior, priority. So if you see that a patient got a carbapenem is prescribed or something with valproate, how should they be monitored or, or managed kind of based on what you all have found in this research? Yeah. And that scenario is so funny, right? Because that happens way too often where you sit down, you're just chart reviewing and you stumble upon something. You're like, ah, oh, now we got to figure this out. Right. Your, your day is um, gone. You're, you're, you're taking your coffee right? with you. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I think in this particular case, firstly, it would be really important to determine the valproate indication and would subsequently then formulate some type of bridging plan. So, you know, if the patient's on the medication for seizures, I would try to work closely with my neuro colleagues, you know, maybe find another anti-epileptic agent that the patient can be maintained on, at least in the short term while they're here and on these concomitant meds. And then similarly, if it's being used for mood control, would help to find an alternative mood stabilizer 
and or maybe some medications that may be needed on a sort of PRN basis for acute agitation if also applicable. Well, I love when when you get kind of pragmatic research, things that we we know of and we were aware of, but we kind of have hard data to support and we kind of know percentages and things. So uh, what an awesome uh, research from the uh, NACCT conference. So uh, Nick, appreciate you uh, joining us from the East Coast and highlighting uh, this great work you and your colleagues are doing. So thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. This was great. And our next featured NACCT researcher is Patrick Doherty. Now, Patrick is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist and PGY1 residency program director at Title Health Peninsula Regional in Salisbury, Maryland. You can find him on Twitter at PDED. Farm D, and very excited to hear more about his research, the use of ertapenem for reducing toxic valproic acid concentrations. So Patrick, welcome and take it away. Thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on the podcast. So I was asked to present this case series that I presented at the NACCT about a month or so ago. And we had two cases here at our medical center a few years ago where they were intentional overdoses of uh, extended-release valproic acid. And we utilized uh, the drug-drug interaction between carbapenems and valproic acid to help reduce those toxic valproic acid concentrations. So the poster will be uh, posted for everyone to, to refer along. But our first case was a 28-year-old male who had a history of bipolar disorder and suicidal ideation. He ingested 30 to 40 tablets of some haloperidol and divalproic sodium and a suicidal gesture, and it was thought to be about two hours prior to arrival. Uh, about 11 hours after ingestion, uh, his level had peaked at 653, and we gave him a dose of one gram ertapenem. And we saw his valproic acid levels drop drastically after that. He had received no other therapy uh, for that uh, intentional overdose. He did receive levocarnitine because his ammonia concentrations did speak, and he received the levocarnitine every four hours, which is pretty much standard of care when you have an intentional valproic acid overdose to help uh, clear the ammonia from the blood. So pretty consistent there. His ammonia peaked at 356. Uh, but we were able to get that down pretty quickly with uh, with levocarnitine. Uh, and that that drug-drug interaction with ertapenem one gram really helped drop his level from 650 uh, right down to like 120 within a day. Uh, and then he was cleared for psychiatric service and discharged three days later. Our second case, a little bit more complicated, was a 61-year-old female who had a history of bipolar disorder uh, and COPD. She intentionally ingested approximately 200 tablets of extended release diverperic sodium 500 milligrams in another suicidal gesture five hours prior to arrival. Uh, she did have a history of hyperaminemia from previous therapeutic valproic acid use. So I'm not sure why she was put back on it, but nonetheless, uh, after this intentional overdose, uh, she was found to be unresponsive, hypothermic and hypotensive and bradyptic, uh, requiring some IV fluids, external warming, and was ultimately intubated in the emergency department. She was given a single dose of activated charcoal shortly upon arrival, uh, both at six hours and 96 hours post-ingestion because her valproic acid levels actually ended up creeping back up. So we gave her a second dose of charcoal. She, like our other patient, did receive a loading dose and uh, levocarnitine doses every four hours, which was pretty consistent. 
Bird of Petum at uh, one gram again, given at seven and a half and 52 and a half hours after her arrival and brought her levels down um, kind of twice. The first dose definitely helped drop uh, the first level of 617 down to about 90 uh, within a day of receiving the Erdipenum. Her levels crept back up after this overdose, and we gave her a second dose of Erdipenum about, yeah, like I said, 52 hours or so, I think, after the ingestion. The levels crept up again, and at that point, she'd been in the ICU. They decided to give her another dose of charcoal, which makes sense as well. I think we can discuss where we may have used Erdipenum as well uh, for a third dose in her uh, in a little, little bit here. But uh, her, her ammonia levels got up shortly after the overdose, as you would expect with somebody with this history. But thankfully, uh, between the levocarnitine and CRRT, which she did receive in the ICU, we got her ammonia levels down, and she ultimately was medically cleared to uh, psychiatric service, uh, but had a stay of about 22 days in the in the hospital. So, uh, with that, I think there's a discussion point of utilizing this drug-drug interaction with the carbapenems and valproic acid. It's a notable drug interaction that when you have a patient who's consistently getting valproic acid for either bipolar disorder or for seizure disorder, you have to start them on a carbapenem for an infectious disease. That interaction could drop their valproic acid levels and they could be at risk of either a psychiatric issue or um, seizure, breakthrough seizures from that. But utilizing this drug-drug interaction in the setting of an intentional overdose can be beneficial for these patients. So there's some case reports out there of utilizing this, this combination here. And I think as time goes on, we'll hopefully see more cases of it and some more data to come around for it. Yeah, I think all of those in practice know trying to like the the interaction between those carbapenems and valproic acid, it's impossible to get a therapeutic level if you're using them concomitantly. So the idea of using this drug drug interaction in your favor. Now let's I want to ask a couple of questions because this is a, a a fascinating, what an awesome case series. Um is this a class effect? Because this your poster specifically used Erdipenum. You know, should we be using that? Do we know if it's if it's any carbapenem or um, specific agents that this interaction is uh, in effect in? It's a class effect. We chose erdipenem because of ease of administration. It's probably the least expensive option for us as well. We also stock imipenem and filostatin uh, as our other uh, pseudomonal carbapenem that we'll use uh, for those uh, ESBL. But erdipenem we have on formulary as well, and it was just once a day dosing, why not go ahead and give it give it here? And I believe there's data out there with meropenem as well for for situations like this, but it's a class effect. So use whichever one you would want to use. And so I think there's if there's some ID colleagues listening, I gotta ask a question that they're all probably wondering. Do we know if one to two doses of a carbapenem contributes to antimicrobial resistance? Um, I, for the record, I want to go on record. I'm team use it to save the life of these toxic levels, but I know that's a question that I've been asked and probably is entering the minds of some others. Sure, sure. Uh, we have an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist here, Mike Miller, who when I showed him some of the data for this, he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> why, why do you use this as inappropriate use of carbapenem? Uh, jokingly, you know, stating that that to me, but I I can't say that there isn't a contribution to bacterial resistance with this. However, the few doses, um, usually one dose would be sufficient, but if you repeat the dosing for it, 
I don't think you're really contributing to bacterial resistance with it. These patients aren't having an active infection that you're having to worry about um, with flaring up of bacteria and going for that. So this is, I, I, clinically, I don't think so. I think go ahead, use it for the instance here. If you can get your valproic acid levels lower and the patient medically cleared faster, you're going to be saving yourself on that end as well. So get them out of the ICU uh, if yep. you can fast. That hopefully prevents uh, further complications from hospitalization. And if you're comparing one to two doses, right, in one bucket, you have the person that's colonized with terrible urinary bacteria that they're giving one to two doses every time they come in versus helping save somebody, right? So, uh, like, if we're comparing one to two doses, right, this is probably a better way. Now, you mentioned in a lot of these cases um, extended release um, or enteric-coated were the, um, uh, I guess, mechanism uh, for the drug. Is there a role for immediate release, like for using carbapenems with an immediate release valproic acid overdose, or is it really for those where you're worried about a level creeping back up? I think in the situation of an immediate release valproic acid overdose, if your levels are, are significantly high enough, you could try this. I don't think there's going to be harm from doing it. Most of the patients that are on valproic acid, I think, are on the enteric-coated or the extended-release formulations. So you're most likely to see it then. But mm -hmm. track those levels. Every hospital should be able to get a valproic acid level. And if you see that level creep up, particularly with worrisome encephalopathy from an elevated ammonia level, go ahead and give the dose. So I do think there's a potential role for it with an immediate-release overdose. I'd love to see any cases uh, get published uh, or discussed in the future for future use there. That's a really good point because really the immediate release would really only be like the solution, right? The one that you would give through like a tube or something maybe. So that's that. Uh, that's a really good point. The Now in the second case, right, the one that you mentioned, 22-day stay, a little more complicated. Um, yeah. You talked about we got a repeat dose and how maybe even a third dose might have helped save some things later. So is there, is it really just kind of your clinical opinion and feel, not you, like, like you, Patrick, but you as in like the team, is it your feel as to when it comes up? Is it any time the level rebounds? Is it a specific number or percent or how do we guide determining when we should consider maybe giving a repeat dose or two? Yeah, I think initially if you get a, a high enough level and kind of to be determined what you want would say is a high enough level. In our cases here, I think about 500, uh, a VPA level of 500 would be significantly high enough where you would consider what can we do to get that level down faster. Both of our patients exceeded 500 and there were 600 levels here. Um, you drop that level after the first dose and if you see the level creeping back up, okay, well, that's telling you there's continued absorption. So you could go along with giving another dose of activated charcoal. Since that level's up, you're absorbing it from the gut but potentially consider giving it a uh, carbapenem as well to help get that drug down faster, that level down faster. So in the, the second case that we had, patient got the dose of charcoal shortly after arrival. That's likely helped, uh, hopefully helped prevent absorption, but the level was already significantly high when they arrived. They had a delayed, fairly delayed presentation, but we felt it was uh, adequate to give them per poison center recommendation to give the dose of charcoal. Shortly after that, we gave them the dose of erdipenem level drops. Level rises within a day, next day or so, and then 
We give another dose of ertapenem. It's hard to say if that level was going to keep going up higher after that. If we hadn't given that dose of, of ertapenem, the second dose of ertapenem, but level came back down and then crept back up. I think at that point you could have considered giving another dose of ertapenem one gram. I don't think there's going to be risk with doing it in that case. And the patient was also on CRRT that was ultimately helping with the ammonia clearance and keep that valproic acid level lower than upon presentation. The ICU staff chose to give a second dose of charcoal. Um, at that point, it was like 90 hours or so after the ingestion. You're st still seeing absorption. Okay, you can give the charcoal, but I think you could have given a third dose of carbapenem as well. Uh, but ultimately, the level came down nicely after the charcoal and good outcomes for both cases. Well, that's uh, I'm glad you got to highlight it. And of course, as we're talking about these, remember, always call your friendly poison center, correct? 1-800-222-1222. So, uh, Patrick, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us from across the uh, Chesapeake Bay. Uh, remember, at PDEDFarmD. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much. This was awesome NACCT research you came on and talked about. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here and um, see you in the future. And just a big shout out to uh, all the clinical toxicologists, everyone in the tox world. Uh, thanks to all six of the guests for coming on today. But just smart, great, kind group of, of individuals you interact with if you ever have to work, get to work with uh, anyone in the tox space. I always love collaborating with our tox colleagues. Uh, so I pointed out their social medias as we introduced them, reach out to them, let them know what an awesome job they did. Uh, and then of course, uh, reach out to me. Let me know what you think at pharmacy to dose on our social medias, a uh, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. If you want to send me an email, and then of course, pharmacy to dose.com, the website where we'll have, uh, the visual you'll be able to go and you'll be able to uh, see PDFs of all the research posters that we talked about here. Um, so you can see the great pharmacist research in the visual format. In addition to this audio format. So until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.